Today's an unusual Sunday. Today I'm going to share with you a first-person sermon. Um, maybe you've never seen one of those before. I've never done this here, and I've only done it once before in my life. A first-person sermon is different from the standard sermon that I preach every single Sunday. A standard sermon is third-person wherein you read the Bible and you describe and explain the actions of others and you try to help people see through explanation what it means. A first-person sermon requires the same study, probably more, actually, and it's a whole different take. It invites the people who are listening to the, to the story of Scripture to experience it as seen through the eyes and in the life of someone who was actually there. I'm not making any of this up. In fact, you're welcome to open your Bibles. We're going to be in the Gospel of John following one of my favorite disciples, Peter. We're going to be in John 1, John 6, John 13, John 18, and finally and most importantly, in the last chapter of uh, the Gospel of John, John 21. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for the privilege it is to open Your Word. Thank You most of all that Your Word points to Your Son, Jesus, all of Scripture, law, prophets, and poetry, all tell us about Him. The privilege of those who saw You in person, Jesus, and walked alongside You in the dust of Your hometown and those ancient, now to us, villages and cities where you preached were privileged more than we can ever imagine. Help me, Lord, as I try to enter into the meaning of the text to deliver the truth of it. And may this unusual delivery not distract anyone, but actually help them experience and most importantly, believe the truth of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I never thought he'd want to see me again. For three years, I walked alongside Jesus. It changed everything about me. It changed my vocation. It changed my everyday schedule. He changed what I loved and how I understood life itself. He gave me life. And when it really counted most, on the worst night of his life, when the whole world closed in around him, just as he told us it would do. When he most needed someone to be with him and to stay loyal to him. I denied him. I betrayed him. He had done me no harm. From the moment I met him, he loved me. And how did I repay him when the pressure was on, when it counted most, when he most needed someone to stand by him, to pray for him, to speak up for him? I, the loudest of the disciples, the first to speak, the only one to get out of the boat, the loudest and the most brash about what I thought I knew about him and what I would do for him at the crucial moment, at the testing time, I denied that I ever knew him. I betrayed him. How did things ever end up in such a tragic, tragic way? 
Well, it happened for me the same way it did for a lot of people who met my brother Andrew. It was Andrew who brought me to Jesus. Andrew and I, we were just fishermen. We were just ordinary working men from the Galilee. We were doing what our ancestors had done for generations, navigating the Sea of Galilee and taking enough fish home to feed our families and to provide at least a decent living for the people in those little houses. But Andrew, Andrew had heard this preacher. They called him John the Baptizer. John had come, and he was preaching like we'd never heard anyone preach before. John the Baptizer was a hard preacher. He preached repentance. He preached to Israel, and he even told soldiers that they all needed to turn away from sin and to make their hearts ready for the one who God was going to send. He drew great crowds. People were always going out in the wilderness to listen to John. And my brother Andrew stuck very close to him, so closely that he was one of his disciples. So when John the Baptist turned one day and pointed to a man in the crowd and he said, look, this is the Lamb of God. He's the one who's going to take away the sin of the world. Well, Andrew dropped everything. He walked away from John and started following Jesus. And just a short time after that, he came to me and he said something that I never expected to hear. He said, we found the Messiah. And he took me to Jesus. And you know, the very moment Jesus met me, he looked me in the eye and he said, so you're Simon, the son of John? They'll call you Rock. He gave me a nickname. I don't know if you've ever had a nickname, but if it's the wrong kind of nickname, it haunts you and it hurts you. I knew that Jesus loved me and He would do more than I could ever ask or expect from the moment He met me because He looked into the face of a simple fisherman and He called me Rock. That's what they called me for the rest of my life. Nobody called me Simon anymore. They called me Rock every day. And I've never felt so good. I've never felt so accepted. I've never felt so strong. And so began the great adventure with Jesus. One day at a time of His choice, Jesus walked among the many of us who were following Him, and He set 12 of us aside in a very special way. He called us apostles. He set us aside to be with Him and to send us out when He was ready to tell other people about Him. My brother Andrew was there with us. He was one of the original twelve. But I never really have gotten over the fact that for no good reason, just because He loved me, Jesus chose me. And the next three years were extraordinary. The things that we saw and the things that we did and that Jesus did through us were things that only God could do. When Jesus' popularity grew so big, we got so busy for one little season that we didn't have time to eat. And Jesus knew us and loved us. He could see how tired we were. He invited us to go aside for a little while, get away from the crowd, stop working so hard, have some time of rest. And that's what we tried to do. But by the time we got to the other side of the little lake, little quiet spot that Jesus had chosen, the people saw us coming, they'd run around, and there were actually a crowd standing on the beach before the boat got there. We were so disappointed. 
not Jesus. Jesus said that he would teach them. And he sat down and he began to tell them all about himself. Well, our day of rest was ruined, and at the end of the day, we said, Jesus, it's, we're a long way from home. These people have got to be hungry. Send them out into the surrounding villages so they can buy some bread. And Jesus said, you give them something to eat. Well, there's 12 guys. We're out on the wilderness. We had planned a picnic, and now we've got maybe 20,000 people crowding around us. It's a ridiculous idea. But he's the master. We're the disciples. He said, get into the crowd and see how much food there is. I was sure he would abandon the plan when we came back with a kid's sack lunch. <laughs> Five little loaves, two little fish. And then I was there. I watched Jesus take a boy's lunch and look up to heaven and ask God's blessing on it. And then he said to us, keep coming back, keep coming back. And he divided all that food between us, 12, and we fed an entire multitude. Never seen anything like it. He could do anything. He could love anyone. And he loved me. I was there in the inner circle. I was seeing the very works of God right in front of me. And I was getting to participate. I was getting to help. Anytime I did what he said, miraculous things happened. Me, the fisherman from Galilee that he's chosen to call the rock, I'd never felt so good, so sure, so strong. So I was walking with Jesus, doing what he asked me. Sometime after that, his friend Lazarus died. We understood it later. John even wrote it down. Jesus deliberately waited until it was absolutely certain that Lazarus had died. They'd placed his body in a tomb. He was rotting in there. And then, finally, days later, Jesus went, and he brought Lazarus back from the dead. I've never seen anything like it. It was the most spectacular, marvelous, and at the same time terrifying thing that I've ever seen in my life. This man was dead. His sisters were shattered. One of them actually sort of accused Jesus, saying, if you had only been here earlier, my brother would have lived. And now he's dead, and then he's back, alive, eating, enjoying meals with us again. Amazing. Extraordinary. Well, I now understand that was actually the beginning of the end for Jesus. That miracle was so notorious, so astonishing, that our religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, started plotting to kill Jesus. They even wanted to kill Lazarus to get him out of the way because it was an embarrassment what they said about Jesus and what Jesus could do. That's how we ended up in the upper room. The last Passover that Jesus enjoyed with us was different from the others. He had taken a borrowed room that somehow he had made ready. And we walked in as we had done all of our lives to celebrate the Passover. And everything was ready except there wasn't a servant because the room didn't belong to us. There should have been a servant at the door. 
with a little basin of water and a towel, and he should have washed our feet so that this most important night of our lives, when we looked back on God's promises to provide a lamb, could be celebrated with dignity as all of our meals always were. This night, no slave to help us wash up. So we just sort of looked at each other and awkwardly walked right past the basin and reclined at the table, wanted to start the meal. I can't tell you how quiet it got when Jesus stood up. He took off his outer garments and he wrapped himself in that towel that belonged to a slave. He brought over the basin of water and he knelt down and one by one he started to wash our feet. I've never been so mortified and ashamed in my entire life. I should be washing his feet. Everybody was quiet. Nobody knew what to say. So when he finally came to me, I said, look down and saw my Lord on his knees in the posture of a slave, getting ready to take my dirty feet in his bare hands and wash them. I said, no, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. He said, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. <laughs> well, that changes everything. I said, in that case, Lord, wash my hands and my head too. Whatever he wants, whatever it takes to be close to him, that's where I want to be. There was nobody like Jesus. Absolutely nobody like him. Circumstances, difficulty, rejection didn't move him in the slightest. When he fed those 5,000 people, Jesus knew from the very beginning what was in the heart of people and what awaited him, and he just moved steadfastly on to do his mission. When he fed that crowd, he could tell what was in the heart of people, and he knew that they were only coming around to be fed, and he told them so. And he preached that day, that afternoon, the hardest sermon I'd ever heard in my entire life. He said, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll never have life. Well, the crowd that day, they, they couldn't make sense. They didn't understand the spiritual meaning of his words. They rejected him. They walked away. I was heartbroken. Some of those who snorted and said, this is a hard word, who can put up with this, and walked away were our fellow disciples, men in the larger group that had walked with us for a long time. I was heartbroken and angry with them, but Jesus wasn't troubled at all. In fact, he looked back at us and said, do you want to leave as well? And I said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And we walked faithfully to Him and faithfully with Him all the way to that upper room. That's how close I'd been to Jesus. That's who I had been. That's the strength He had given me when He called me the rock. I was the spokesperson. Even when I was wrong, I was trying to do the right thing, trying to be loyal, trying to stay in my place because he's the Lord and I'm the servant. That's why I didn't want him to wash my feet. 
And that embarrassing foot washing was over. He told us that he had done that to set us an example. He said, you should serve each other the way I've served you. You say that I'm your Lord and I am, but the way you're going to show it is by serving and loving one another. That's how everybody will know that you are my disciples. What else could I say? He had taught us everything. Right there in that upper room, after showing us all that, doing all those miracles, feeding crowds with the kids' lunch, raising the dead, doing everything that God himself alone could do, then he told us he had to leave. He said, I'm leaving, and where I'm going, you cannot follow me. Well, that wounded me. Whether it was him not washing my feet or washing my head and my hands and my feet, whatever it took, I wanted to be with him. And I said, Lord, what do you mean I can't go with you? I'll lay my life down for you. And Jesus looked at me with such deep understanding and compassion, I couldn't understand then what he always knew. And he said, Peter, you'll lay your life down for me? You'll deny me three times before the rooster crows. Well, that made me go cold. But he was on a timetable. He knew exactly where he was going and what he was doing that night. We left out into a very dark night, not knowing that Judas, that wretched traitor, had gone ahead of us and was already on his way back with armed men to take Jesus away and murder him. We didn't have much time left with him. But he taught us with more clarity and more love and compassion than I can ever remember. He told us that He was leaving us not to abandon us, but to go to prepare a place for us so that where He is, we could be also. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As we arrived in the Garden of Gethsemane, He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Without me, you can't do anything. You stay with me, you'll bear much fruit. He even prayed for us. He had taught us to pray, but this prayer was different. We got to listen as He spoke to His Father. We got to listen as He spoke to His Father, just between the two of them, about us, what our lives would be, how much He had loved us, how much He had protected us and known us from the beginning, how He hadn't lost a single one of us. And about the time he finished that prayer, here comes Judas, who had been with us the whole time, who had been a man we'd trusted. We'd actually given him the money bag. And here he comes with soldiers and weapons and torches. Even then, Jesus was courageous and thought of us first. He told them he was the one they were looking for and they should leave us alone and let us go home. When Jesus said, I am, that entire company of wicked men fell to the ground. And I looked at Jesus thinking and hoping that he would escape. This wasn't the first time that a mob had tried to kill Jesus. They'd tried to stone him and throw him off cliffs before. But this time he just stood there allowing those of us who would run to run while he himself subjected himself to the hands of wicked men who had, he had never harmed.
Well, when they first put hands on him, it was more than I could take, and I snapped. I took a short little sword I'd hidden in my garments, and I made a slashing move. All I managed to do was cut a man's ear off. Even then, Jesus spoke calmly and lovingly. He took care of that man, and he said, Peter, put that sword away. I have to drink down the cup that my father is giving me. Well, I knew what he meant. He meant he was going to drink down death. They were actually going to kill him. And they did that night. John and I, well, we, we did the best we could. We followed at a distance. John knew somebody in the high priest's house, and he got us into the courtyard. The servant girl who watched the date, who watched the gate, said to me, Hey, aren't you one of his disciples too? No, I'm not. It was off my lips before I realized what I was saying. Made me go cold, made me embarrassed. But I was in the courtyard. Jesus was nearby. I did the best I could. I went to a little charcoal fire that the servants and the officers had built. And I tried to keep my head down and get close to the fire and turn my shoulders up so nobody would see me, but it didn't work. Someone in the crowd said, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? And I denied it again. And then, of all things, a relative of the man I'd attacked back when they arrested Jesus looked me straight in the face. When his eyes narrowed, I knew I was in trouble. He said, didn't I see you in the garden? And I denied Jesus, my Savior and Lord, for the third time. Just then, the rooster crowed. It shattered me. I went out and sort of wept my way through the rest of that night. Now Jesus is all alone. The man he called Rock has denied him. None of his disciples can help him. His own mother has to witness his death. And what a terrible, terrible way they chose to kill Jesus. You've never seen it, and I can't explain to you the barbarity of a Roman crucifixion. By the time they were done with him, his body looked like a tattered rag. It looked like they had soaked Jesus in his own blood. Never once did he speak in his own defense. Never once did he speak in condemnation of anyone who was hurting him and killing him. He only spoke in favor and to bless and to protect others, even as they killed him. And as he died, he continued speaking to his father. The cruelty was more than I could tell you. When it was over, his body was caked with dust and blood. And they even took a spear and ran his dead body through, and they didn't need to do that. That was just cruelty. That's how dark, that's how awful it was. I'll never forget it. And it was over. It was over for Jesus, and it was over for us.
They had murdered him, and we knew they would come for us next. And then, and this has made all the difference, just as he had told us many times, and just as our Scriptures, I understand that now, promised that he always would, he came back from the dead. John and I actually saw the empty tomb together, but even then, with an empty tomb in front of us, with the grave clothes in order, we didn't know what to make of it. We didn't really understand the magnitude of what was happening until Jesus walked into our locked room and stood before us. But still, I was the denier. The others had run. I had denied him. I had three chances to speak up for him. Three chances to tell the truth. Three chances to honor the man who saved my life. And I didn't take one of them. I actually took oaths the third time, swearing that I'd never met the man. So I, I just got on with life. Jesus was back, showing himself to his disciples, but it didn't do much for the denier. So I got my fishing boat back. Always had it, never had done much with it in the last three years. I told some of the boys, boys, I'm going fishing, and some of them said, we'll go with you. Too many of them, in fact. We ended up seven guys in one little boat. Felt good to be out on the water. Sad why I was there, but I enjoyed it. We fished all night. And maybe because some of these guys weren't fishermen, and maybe because there were seven men packed into one little boat, we fished all night and caught absolutely nothing. At dawn, fishing's over, we're packing up, and somebody from the beach says, Boys, do you have anything to eat? Who's this? And what a question. Was he mocking us? No. Man on the beach said, Throw the net on the right side, you'll catch something. Well, now I know we're being insulted. See, the boat's only 30 feet long and about 8 feet wide. We've been out there all night. It's not a matter of what side of the boat you throw the net on. The boat's little, the net's big. But we humored the man and threw the net out. And as soon as they pulled on it, they pulled a weight so big, people started shouting. They had a full catch. John always understood things before I did. He was always the first to understand. I was always the first to act. John looked at me and said, it's the Lord. And I'd taken off most of my clothes to work. So I threw on my tunic and jumped in the water. Now, you may think it's strange to get dressed before you jump into the water, but I wanted to get to Jesus just as fast as I could, and I wanted to be as presentable as I could when I walked up out of the water onto the beach. It's not easy to swim 100 yards in a robe, but I managed. And the disciples rowing and pulling and struggling behind me all the while, they never could get the net back into the boat. There were so many fish in it. 
I arrived, I walked up out of the water, and here's Jesus. He's made us breakfast. He's got a fire going. He has fish cooked. He even has bread waiting. And he said, bring some of that fish you caught. We'll, we'll cook it up. Well, I jumped back into the boat and helped with the fish. 153 fish we caught that day. All night, nothing. His word, 153 fish, just like that catch of a lifetime. And then we sat down and ate. I don't remember anybody saying much. You'd never really get used to seeing a dead man alive again and having breakfast with you. I could see the wounds they left on him, and here he was, eating with us, serving us. And then for the first time since I denied him, he spoke to me directly. By that little charcoal fire, he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I can't tell you how much that hurt. He put his finger right where it hurt. Because the last time we had talked just between the two of us, I had promised him publicly that if everybody else abandoned him, not only would I love him, I'd die for him. What could I say? So embarrassing. I said, Lord, you, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. Then he asked me again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? This time I couldn't help but notice he's not calling me rock anymore. He's calling me by my name, calling me by my full name, the same way he did the day he met me and changed my name. I said, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. Then he asked me the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Well, I was hurt before, the third question. It just knocked me right down. I'd felt so good. I'd felt so strong. I'd felt so alive, so loved, so confident the whole time I was with Jesus. Now he's asking me for the third time if I love him. And I broke. What could I say? I'm the denier, I'm the betrayer. I'm the one who ran his mouth off and then lied and denied with oaths that he ever met the man. So I said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And he said, feed my sheep. Then he spoke again. He said something I wasn't expecting. That's the way it is with Jesus. Sometimes he says things you don't expect. He says, when you were a young man, you dressed yourself, and walked wherever you pleased. But when you're older, you'll stretch out your hands. Someone else will dress you, and they'll carry you where you don't want to go. Well, I knew what he meant. 
That was a phrase we had come up with to speak more gently of a Roman crucifixion. He meant that I was back. He meant that He still loved me. He meant that I was still allowed to follow Him. Much more than that, He was telling me that I would follow Him, and somehow, some way, when it counted again, and when as I was under pressure of death again, the next time when it really counted, I would be faithful, all the way to my own cross. I've never forgotten. Since that day to this, the shadow of a cross looms over my life. I don't know when they'll come for me, but I know that they will because Jesus told me they would. I've been doing what Jesus told me to do from then until now. At that moment, and this is me in my impulsive speech again, I looked over at John and to this day, I've thought a lot about this. To this day, I don't think I meant anything by it. But at that moment, I said, what about him? And I didn't mean anything by it. John was, he was my best friend. We'd done everything together. We'd spent so much time together. Jesus' answer brought me up short. He said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what difference does that make to you? You follow me. So that's what I've been doing. I've been following him every day since. So is John. So should you. You see, that third question, that third painful question by the fire broke me. Yeah, I was the rock. That's what Jesus called me. But I cracked. So I don't know much anymore. The whole time I walked with Jesus until I denied Him, I told Him, I know and I'll do and I'll go. All this has taught me something really important. It doesn't matter nearly so much what I know and what I, who I am and what I say I'll do. What matters is who Jesus is and what Jesus did and what Jesus says that I can do. So from that day to this, one day at a time, I've tried to follow him. I learned the greatest thing about Jesus. When his disciples fail him, he doesn't write us off. He comes back. So maybe you're like me. Maybe you're looking back at better days where you loved him more and spoke more highly of him. And maybe you're like me, but maybe you're so sad and disappointed with what you've done and how you've failed him and betrayed him in your own small way. Believe me, you'll never betray him as badly as I did that night. You need to know that Jesus comes back for his disciples. And what matters is what Jesus knows and what Jesus does. So what I'm doing is what I invite you to do. I'm following him. I'm giving up on my own self-confidence. I'm giving up on what I think I know and what I think I'll do. I'm trusting Him. It's the great thing about Jesus. If you follow Him, He'll show you what you can do. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, you are such a faithful, patient, long-suffering Savior who loves the lost. You love people who don't know you at all, and you even love disciples like me who fail and betray you. Get more interested in my own strength than yours and always fall flat on my face because of it. Thank you for that grace. If there's someone here who doesn't know you, I pray right now that they would do as you asked and they would turn away from your sin and they would ask you to be their Savior. You alone can take away the sin of the world. You alone can take their sin. For disciples, Lord, who have disappointed you and disappointed themselves, Christians who are here this morning who have settled into a disappointed Christian life because they've sinned after they met you. Help them to hear your loving grace and restoration. Your strength, what you say, what you do, is capable of making us faithful again and faithful to the end. So as we conclude this service, I pray that you would speak to every heart as only you can according to every individual's need. And thank you, Jesus for coming back and restoring fallen disciples when we've said and done the very worst. I thank you in your name, the name of Jesus, my Savior. Amen.